Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter series dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hello, everyone. It's Patrick Beeman, your host. This is an episode in our Step 2 and Shelf Exam Study Smarter series. Inside the Boards, it's High Yield Med Ed for free. Here we go. Welcome to Inside the Boards and our Psychiatry Study Smarter series. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alex Rabin from the University of Toronto. Dr. Rabin has been very involved with the Psyched podcast, which was started by first-year residents at the University of Toronto in 2015 and officially launched in 2017. It's a show that's for medical learners, by medical learners. It's aimed for clerks and junior residents to teach them evidence-based and clinically relevant deep dives on core psychiatry topics. This is a show that I've loved listening to myself. I've learned so much from Dr. Raven and his colleagues. And so without further ado, here's Dr. Raven. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure to have you. It's weird being on this side of the table and having all the <laughs> questions directed at you rather than asking them. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, with uh, all your experience, uh, I think that there'll be a lot that, uh, especially the, the medical students and uh, junior residents can learn. So, yeah, wanted to have you on and pick your brain. Great. Great. All right. So, the idea for this episode today is to begin with a deep dive into major depressive disorder and really start to go into mood disorders in general. So, as you are a third year clerk and will be on the wards. Um, you may or may not get some sort of outpatient experience. Major depression will be one of the most common things that you'll encounter. So Dr. Rabin and I thought that it would be really important uh, to you know cover all the bases, talk about how the diagnosis is made, what are the treatment options, and you know how, how it will be like managing these patients. So that's our plan for today. So Without further ado, let's dive into major depression and I guess begin with what kinds of things we should be looking out for as, as medical students in our psychiatry clerkship. For sure. So I'll also start with just a couple of caveats. So I'm still in my training. I'm a fifth year resident at the moment. So take that as you will. And also being from Canada, I bring a Canadian bias to some of my information. And so, Nick, if something seems a little amiss, then please jump in with the American perspective. Uh, sure. But I'll try to keep it as international as possible. Mm -hmm. I guess to keep this as uh, clinically relevant for learners who are just starting on their psychiatry rotation, probably the highest yield information would be how to make a diagnosis of depression. And then having some understanding of what treatment options are out there, even though you as a clerk are maybe not the most likely to start those treatments, mm -hmm. but you should be able to think through them and create a beginning of a management plan that your team can kind of work with. But I think as a clerk, the biggest thing is getting used to interviewing in a psychiatric setting. And we have the sort of longest interview of any specialty, I would argue. And so mm -hmm. getting used to that style of interviewing and then getting very familiar with the diagnoses, I think is a good place to start. Great. So in terms of if we focus on major depression, then how does one diagnose major depression? This is a very common diagnosis, so you will definitely encounter it on your rotation. And so it's an important one to know. With all the diagnoses uh, in psychiatry, we use the DSM-5. That's our diagnostic Bible, if you will. 
And I think that's a commonality between us and, and you guys in, in America. Certainly. I know in Europe, they maybe tend to use the ICD a little bit more, but we stick to the DSM-5. And it's a big book. <laughs> it's got a lot of words, but I think it can really be broken down and simplified in a lot of ways. And so I'll take you through my approach to that. Now, everything in the DSM-5, there's certain commonalities between all the disorders. So they all need to cause some degree of dysfunction or distress, otherwise they wouldn't be considered disorders. And so a lot of the text that goes into talking about depression or other disorders will be focused on the dysfunction or other criteria. But what I would suggest is that you kind of eliminate those criteria that are common to all disorders and focus on the specifics. So for depression, that's the MSIGI-CAPS criteria, and you also need to know the chronicity. So, of course, just like any other disorder, you need to rule out other disorders that are on the differential, and it can't be caused by a medical condition, and it must cause distress. But if we eliminate that extra information, we can focus just on the core aspect. So, the SIGI-CAPS is a mnemonic, and I'll go through what it means. So, M Siggy caps. M is for mood. So someone has to have low mood most days, most of the day. So we'll talk about the differential, but this is not just sadness. We all feel sad occasionally, but this is a persistently sad mood. S is for sleep disturbance. That could be sleeping more or less than usual. I is for interest or a lack of interest in things that you once had interest in. The psychiatric term for this is anhedonia, so a lack of pleasure from pleasurable activities. G is for guilt or guilty thoughts that might come up more than usual. E is for energy. Generally speaking, less energy or fatigue is seen with depression. C is for concentration, so people will often complain that they can't concentrate very well when they're depressed. A is for appetite, and that can also, just like sleep, it can be increased or decreased. P is an interesting one because we actually don't ask about it. It's psychomotor retardation or agitation. And so we kind of look at our patient and we see, are they slowed down? Which is usually, well, that can happen in depression. And then finally, the last S is for suicidal ideation, which again is commonly seen with depression. And so they need to have five of these criteria. And one of them has to be low mood or anhedonia, the low interest or low pleasure. They also have to have this for two weeks or longer. So that's the chronology piece. So that's really the basics. That's what we would call major depression in terms of the diagnostic criteria. But you also have to be able to ask around this. That's the real challenge, right? Anyone can kind of memorize this mnemonic, but it's not as easy to ask around it. Right. So in terms of how to ask this, let me take a step back. I think with any diagnostic interview, you want to be creating hypotheses early about what you think might be going on. So you want to be generating ideas mm -hmm. so that you can test your theories. You're not just sort of collecting information. And this really starts when you're reading the notes, like the past notes, if there's anything on the computer or in the system. 
And it would also start when you first see the person and you look at their mental status, you're already going to be thinking, okay, could they be maybe depressed? May they have a personality disorder? Could this be substance? And that's going to generate what specific questions you're going to be asking. But it's also important early in the interview to stay open. And I think you and Dr. Pewter on the last episode talked a lot about this and how it's really important to ask those open-ended questions at the beginning. Mm-hmm. One of the big reasons for that, firstly, is to build rapport because people mm-hmm. don't like to be interrupted or sort of pigeon-held early in an interview. But another big reason is that you want to let them explain it from their perspective without biasing them. Mm-hmm. And you want to be generating your hypotheses based on what their chief complaint is. So with depression, often the chief complaint is, you know, I just feel awful. I, I'm not uh, enjoying things. I'm, I'm not getting out of bed. I'm not motivated. And so when you hear those kinds of things early in an interview, then your hypothesis may be, is this person depressed? Then from there, you go into the more specific M. Ziggy Caps questions. And although you don't want to necessarily be checkboxy and just click off the checklist, you do want to make sure that you're hitting on each of these questions in some way or another. Nick, I'm sure you do this all the time. You probably have examples as well. So feel free to to jump in. But asking around mood, well, generally mood is my sort of screener question. So by screener question, I mean, I'm opening a door and seeing, is there anything there that I should follow up on? Because I may not do all of M. Ziggy Caps for every person. If I don't think mm-hmm. this person is depressed, I'm going to save time and move on with my interview. So you want to put out a screener question to test your hypothesis and see if it's more or less likely that they're depressed. And if it's more likely, then you want to be thorough and go through the whole criteria. Right. So I might ask something like, have you noticed your mood has been down and you can't really seem to get it up and it's been going on for like a few weeks? And I I see if I get any kind of reaction to that. Or I I might just ask, how's your mood been? And if they say sad, then I try to ask, okay, how long has it been sad? Does it go up and down or has it been pretty down lately? Mm-hmm. And if I get that hit that it's been down for quite a while and it seems to be persistently down, then I'm going to really focus on depression. Mm-hmm. The one thing to remember, though, is that you don't have to have low mood to be depressed. It can also be anhedonic. So if you don't get a hit there, you should also ask about anhedonia. Nick, I'm wondering, how do you tend to ask about anhedonia? So, what I was just thinking as you were going through some of those questions that, you know, perhaps in the outpatient setting, the question about, you know, how someone's mood has been going might be more appropriate than if you're in the emergency department, for instance, and and you know, and the patient knows that they're there because they're suicidal, for instance. And so, yeah, so sometimes I have just left it a little bit more open, or if it's obvious to the patient and to you you know, that they're in the hospital because they're suicidal. I've asked before just, you know, what's been going on lately, or it seems like things have been tough, what's been going on, or just an open question like that to just allow them to to start talking when it's obvious that their mood is, you know, is pretty down and they're down in the depths. Right. And then you asked a question about anhedonia. I, I guess I've asked before, have there been any activities that you used to enjoy doing that you don't find yourself doing anymore? Have you noticed yourself uh, no longer enjoying some things that you used to like to do? And I, I like to try to ask for certain examples, you know. I find sometimes when digging a little deeper, 
it will display maybe a little bit more of what's been going on outside of just not you know, going to their card games that they used to play or something mm-hmm. that then they, they start to describe, you know, yeah, I haven't, I've stopped going to, to play cards with my friends because uh, I just haven't felt uh, like I've had the energy for it lately or something. Some other parts of city caps might sort of reveal themselves. Right. So you bring up a bunch of really good points, actually. One is when you're staying open, you might get some freebies. Mm-hmm. And this is really important. And something I notice clerks will often miss is when information is freely given to you that already ticks a Siggy Caps criteria, mm-hmm. take that. <laughs> it's one of those rare sort of free lunch scenarios. So right. what I often see is patient will say, yeah, I've just been really tired lately. Like I can't get out of bed. And then the next question from the clerk will be, how's your energy been? And so that's a question that didn't need to be asked because you already had the information. And actually, I would argue it was a higher quality information because you weren't even biasing them with a question. They were spontaneously giving you that. So take that as it is, mark it down on your sheet, but don't ask the question. Save the time for your more Mm. because you're under a time crunch. And so save it for another question. Or you can always elaborate it, right? Oh, you've been tired. Tell me about that. Like, how have you been sleeping, right? You can use it to enter into other criteria. Mm -hmm. So that's a really good point that you bring up. And then you also bring up some good points around anhedonia, right? Knowing what they enjoyed previously is really important because then you can compare to that. Mm -hmm. Oh, so you used to do like play football all the time. Why did you stop? And then they might say, well, I just don't enjoy it as much as I used to, or I don't feel motivated to do it anymore. And And so you get that information in that way. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you sort of bring up is understanding where they were before. So again, chronology is really important because if Mm -hmm. you ask these questions like, how is your energy? Well, how is my energy when? (laughs) Like right now? Maybe it's okay, but it's been horrible for the last like month. Mm -hmm. So you have to just make sure that you're being specific about what time period you're talking about. And it's often helpful to also ask them when was the last time they felt well so you can understand what they were like before. Mm -hmm. But assuming you've got a good timeline, you know when the episode roughly has been, then you can start rattling off your Siggy Caps pretty quickly. So once I establish they've had this period of low mood or anhedonia, then I want to do the rest of Siggy Cap. Okay, how has your sleep been? And if they tell you poor, then you need to do a bit more digging. Mm-hmm. And usually with sleep, I like to get pretty specific. I want to know when do they go to bed? When do they wake up? Is it trouble falling asleep? Is it trouble staying asleep? Mm-hmm. All that can be really helpful information. Guilty thoughts. Different people ask this different ways. Like, how have you been feeling about yourself lately? Have you noticed more guilty feelings coming up for you than usual? That can usually evoke the guilty thoughts. Mm-hmm. Energy and concentration are usually fairly easy to ask around. Usually same with appetite, right? You can just sort of directly say like, how's your energy been? How's your appetite been? Are you able to focus on things? For concentration, you might give specific examples. Like if I'm talking to a student, I might say, you know, have you been struggling in school more? Are you able to read your textbooks or your courses, course material? As I said, psychomotor retardation, you don't really ask around, but you could ask if other people have commented on it. And then uh, suicidal ideation, you would ask about that directly as well. Mm -hmm. 
Great. So those cover the MCG caps of major depression. So again, that's depressed mood or anhedonia or loss of interest. And then the S is for changes in sleep. I, loss of interest, like I just mentioned, G, feelings of guilt. E, changes in energy level, decreased energy, typically. Loss of concentration or decreased concentration for C. A, for appetite changes, typically. Loss of appetite. P, for that psychomotor retardation or agitation. And then the S for suicidality. Just to go over those one more time so they're really ingrained in your head. No, exactly. This is maybe a little bit... Maybe not controversial, but I don't know if any everyone would agree with me. But for me personally, I like to use paper templates, or I ha- like have a mm-hmm. template on my page that I create either myself or there's some available online, and that just reminds me to get all those criteria. So I will actually write out Siggy caps, and then if someone is positive, I will circle that, and if they're yeah. negative, I will cross it out. So it's just a very quick reminder not only to ask the questions, but then afterwards when you're giving your presentation or writing your note, it's all right there for you. It's very easy to access. The I guess the controversy here is that you also don't want to have your head buried in your right. notes when you're talking to someone. So you have to get used to looking up from the page. But I mm-hmm. do suggest, especially when you're starting out in psychiatry, to have it written down so that you're not forgetting to get everything. Yeah. And one thing that might be mentioned to you by your attendings, which, you know, some people use atypical features and some people do not in their formulation. So one thing that I've had an attending ask me about is the atypical features of depression, which are uh, related to the appetite. So it would be atypical for someone's appetite to be increased. Right. You would also get hyper increased sleep. So hypersomnia as well. And then the weird one is what they call leaden paralysis, which just basically means that it's a subjective feeling that their limbs are made of lead. They're very heavy. Mm-hmm. And we typically see atypical, that's an interesting phrase, in uh, children, like younger kids or adolescents mm-hmm. is where you tend to see that more. Well, great. Uh, so now that we've gone through some of the diagnostic criteria for major depression, let's go into the differential diagnosis. And I think you already sort of touched on this a little bit of you know, as we're getting more information from the patient and are able to come up with, you know, a more fleshed out picture, it, it may be revealed that there are other possible illnesses going on that could be causing these symptoms other than major depression. Mm-hmm. So what would be some of the, you know, most important things to look out for here and, and uh, other illnesses to consider? For sure. For a diagnosis that on the surface seems fairly easy to make, I think the differential is actually pretty large. And and this is where we really have to like rack our brains after we've done our interview to make sure we're not missing anything or during as well. And so some of the things you want to think about, firstly, is other depressive disorders. If you look at the DSM, it's broken into chapters and one is depressive disorders. And that includes major depression, but there are a few others. And the other big one is persistent depressive disorder, which used to be called dysthymia. And so this is kind of like major depression, but it lasts a lot longer. So it has to be at least two years long or longer of depressed mood. Now, the other difference is they don't have to meet all of the Siggy Caps criteria like a major depression. They can kind of have a lighter version of it. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to have as many symptoms. 
also with that disorder, they add two additional criteria, hopelessness and worthlessness or low Mm self-esteem. The acronym for PDD is ACHUS, A-C-H-E-W-S. So A is for anhedonia, C, concentration, H is hopelessness, E is energy, W is worthlessness, and S is sleep. So that would be one to consider. And I'd also add with that, just like for me as a student studying for the boards or for the shelf, that probably the the most important thing to latch onto there is the timeline, like you were just mentioning, of it being two years or longer, uh, that will really help you to identify a patient with persistent depressive disorder versus major depression, you know, on an exam, in addition to in the clinic or on the wards. Exactly. And I'll also say that they can have major depressive episodes within that two years, and it would still Mm -hmm. be considered persistent depressive disorder. Um, And there are specifiers with that that we won't go into, but needless to say, this is one of the things that you want to put on your differential. Another big one, if there's been a recent loss, is grief or bereavement. So if someone in this person's family has passed away, you really want to be thinking about this one. The main difference is that their sadness will be focused around the loss. Whereas in depression, often you get these negative thoughts about yourself. I'm not worth very much. I'm not good at this. In bereavement, you'll get, I miss that person. I can't go on without them. And so that's one to consider as well, but look for that difference. Also with grief, they tend not to be as persistently low in mood. They'll have moments where when they think about their loved one, they smile, they're happy, they can laugh about good times. And so it usually comes more in waves rather than being persistently low. And then also with that, I've seen some questions before where there does appear to be some suicidal ideation in a patient with grief or bereavement, but that it's more like wishing that they would die to be able to uh, join with or, or be reunited with the loved one. And so like you were saying, you know, everything's focused around that loss or around that that person that they were, they're missing. Exactly. Whereas yeah. in, in depression, it may be more suicidal ideation because they can't tolerate the symptoms anymore and they don't see any other way to help themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly right. I already mentioned sadness. So we all have normal sadness, but that's not the same thing as depression. It doesn't last persistently. Uh, and then a big one you want to be thinking about is bipolar disorder. So in bipolar disorder, you have both depressive episodes and manic episodes, episodes where the mood is very high and lots of energy. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. But many people with bipolar disorder, their first episode will be a depression. And they may have a few depressive episodes before they ever have a manic or hypomanic episode. And so you always want to be thinking in the back of your mind when you see someone who's depressed, could this actually be bipolar disorder? A lot of people when they're manic, they don't recognize it actually. And so they may not report it to you. So you really want to be asking about manic symptoms whenever you have someone who seems depressed to you so that you can rule in or out bipolar disorder. Some other things to think about is, could this be induced by a substance or medication? So a substance or medication-induced depressive disorder. So a very common one is uh, someone who has alcohol use disorder or they drink maybe above the guidelines and they start to have low mood for that reason because alcohol is a depressant. 
Another thing is that it could be caused by a medical condition, depressive disorder due to another medical condition. I think Dr. Pewter mentioned on the, the last episode, obstructive sleep apnea. Right. So that's a common one that we might see as a mimic for depression. If someone's getting really poor quality sleep over a long period of time, their mood can plummet and they can appear to be depressed. But if you treat the sleep apnea, they can get better. Another common one would be hypothyroidism, something that we commonly check patients that they they may you know feel that they're lower energy or getting some changes in their weight that they may associate with their appetite changes or things like that that would make you wonder whether or not there was some uh, major depressive feature as well when they may just be hypothyroid. Yeah, exactly. So you're right. We will check the TSH, particularly when it's someone's first episode as well. Mm -hmm. A few others to consider. Adjustment disorder. So with low mood. So when someone goes through a big life stressor and they're not coping well with it, they can get an adjustment disorder where emotions are high and this can involve low mood, but they won't meet the full criteria. So that's where it's really important to kind of count up all the positive criteria. And if you're not quite there, you want to be thinking about adjustment disorder. And that, that one's important because you don't treat adjustment disorder with medications. You treat it with supportive therapy. And then personality disorders are another big category where often, especially borderline personality disorder, they will report sort of chronic feelings of being low in mood or anxious. And so it can mimic very easily a, a depression, particularly if they're quite uh, stressed out. The common thing that raises my antenna with uh, personality is if I ask someone, how long have you been depressed for? Or how long has your mood been low? And they say my whole life, then I'm usually thinking this could be a personality disorder. Or, and then I test that hypothesis. And classically, with borderline personality disorder, there's uh, a tendency towards multiple suicide attempts and or some sort of uh, repetitive suicidal ideation that may sort of raise your antennae like you were saying, uh, if you were to see somebody who is suicidal, that you're initially concerned about major depression, but then uh, you were to find that 10 or 20 or 30 times that uh, they presented to the emergency room with the, with this sort of complaint, right? it might be something to look out for. For sure. And, you know, life doesn't fit into our textbooks very nicely. And so right. someone can have borderline personality disorder and depression. Mm -hmm. And a helpful way to tease it out is that People with border, just borderline personality disorder, the mood is not going to be persistently low for an extended period of time. They're going to have mm -hmm. trouble with emotional regulation. So like for a couple hours, they might feel really low and then they might feel really great the next few hours. So you're going to see these fluctuations on a different time scale than you would with depression. Mm -hmm. And so you really want to pin down that time scale when you're suspecting that this person may have borderline personality disorder. And then one last one to think about in women is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And this is where it's also a depressive disorder where the mood gets low and sometimes irritable just before menstruation, and then it resolves after menstruation. So you should hear that pattern in the history, and that's how you know it's not depression, it's PMDD. One thing I did want to mention, you know, we are talking just about major depression right now, but when you're screening for mania, I do think it'd be helpful to just quickly go through dig fast uh, for some of these uh, symptoms to look out for. This is uh, very quickly a uh, another mnemonic like Siggy caps where 
you know, can help you to guide you to check if the patient has had increased distractibility for D. I is for indiscretion, um, or sometimes people say for irritability. G for grandiosity, uh, so thinking that they are God or or a king or or some sort of um, inflated sort of self vision, and then the F for flight of ideas, often pressured speech going along with that of uh, sort of a speech pattern that's hard to follow and where it may feel difficult to break in at some point. The A for being for activity increase, um, so people may be up uh, for multiple nights working on certain projects. The S is for changes in sleep, typically decreased sleep or not needing sleep for multiple days. And T for the talkativeness, like I sort of mentioned before, with the pressured speech. Um, so just very quickly, that's dig fast um, as you are making sure to rule out any recent mania or former mania in a patient that may seem depressed. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to go over that just because you do want to be screening as part of your diagnostic assessment when you have someone you think may be depressed. The other thing about the dig fast is also chronology and really figuring out when these episodes were and how long they lasted for. Because every one of us will have moments in our lives where we're really excited, maybe we're feeling really mm-hmm. good about ourselves. Right. But it's really when it lasts for uh, four days or longer that we start to worry about bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. And so you want to be asking like, is this lasting for four days or longer or a week or longer? So four days would be hypomania, a week or longer would be potentially mania. And then you want to ask the dig fast questions around that. And with all that, you know, checking to see whether it's caused any issues in their lives or any dysfunction. So, you know, asking about whether they've spent too much money on things and maybe, you know, lost all their money or gone bankrupt or whether they have been sexually risk taking. Those would be some of the common things that, that maybe would cause some of their, you know, some sort of dysfunction or, or some sort of issue for them. For sure. And I think Dr. Pewter mentioned it on the last episode as well, that mm-hmm. sleep is one of the great dividers when it comes to bipolarity. Mm-hmm. If the person is sleeping eight hours a night, it's very unlikely that they were in a manic or hypomanic episode. Mm-hmm. It's really that lack of sleep that often raises our alarm bells. And then we really start digging for yeah. uh, the other symptoms. Yeah. yeah. Well, I may have gotten us out on a tangent on mm-hmm. bipolar and, and mania. So going back to major depressive disorder, so we've had the interview, we've gone through the diagnostic criteria, and we've talked about the differential diagnosis and things that we're considering. So then if it does appear this is major depressive disorder, what are some of the treatments that we'll be considering for the patients? So I would say the mental status for depression can be quite variable, but the classic mental status would be they may not be taking very good care of their hygiene if they're not very motivated usually not to the same extent as someone with a primary psychotic disorder, but in a severe depression, it could be really bad hygiene. They will often have that psychomotor slowing, so they'll kind of walk into your office quite slowly. Their speech may be slow. It's usually kind of low and quiet as well. Sort of like, yeah, I'm not feeling too good kind of speech. Their affect will often be dysphoric. You also want to look for psychotic phenomena as well, because you can have depressions with psychosis. So that could also be there, but usually is not. But that's typically what you might see. Mm -hmm. But if you don't see those, you can't necessarily hang your hat on that either. Uh, Maybe we'll, we'll move on to treatment. 
Sounds good. So in terms of the high level, I think it's important always to take a biopsychosocial approach to treating any disorder, really, and, mm-hmm. and depression is no different. Although bio comes first in the word, I'm going to flip it around because I actually think we need to be considering the social and psychological and, and giving those a, a, their proper due as well. Because for a mild depression, you may actually not need medication. And there are lots of patients who prefer the psychosocial therapies and may not actually want a medication and you may have to choose another option. So in terms of sort of the lowest level of treatment or when you have the sort of the most mild depression, you want to think about lifestyle factors. What in this person's lifestyle could we improve that Mm -hmm. would have antidepressant effects? And so uh, a big thing is exercise. So uh, we don't often talk about exercise as an antidepressant, but it is. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of good evidence that it can treat mild depression. And so telling your patients this is really important and then encouraging them to set exercise goals. So if you can get them to do 30 minutes of exercise three to five times a week, that's going to be really helpful to them. And sort of along those lines, there's something called behavioral activation which is just sort of getting up and going without necessarily doing formal exercise. Some people would consider that sort of its own psychotherapy. Some people would consider it more a lifestyle intervention, but it's basically just encouraging them to fight against that urge to stay in bed all day and to get up and set some goals around what they're going to do, like take the dog for a walk or things like that. And so little things like that can actually go a long way in treating depression or at least helping in the overall treatment. Mm-hmm. even in more severe cases. Another thing would be sleep hygiene, so helping them get better sleep through small changes in their routine. We won't go through everything, but a big one these days is having the phone in front of your face right before you lie down to go to bed, and we know that can keep people awake, so just turning the phone off a few hours before you go to bed can make it mm-hmm. be a big help to get the sleep better, which can then often help with the mood. Mm -hmm. As well as also uh, reserving the bed for sleep and that, you know, a common thing in uh, in people with depression is to spend the entire day in bed and uh, to try to create some structure around making sure that doesn't happen and that that it's only used for, for when it's time to go to bed. Yeah, exactly. And there's lots of good handouts online that you can Google if you just Google sleep hygiene handout and they'll give you a pretty detailed info on all the various ways people can help themselves to a better sleep through small changes. Considering social still, um, thinking about their friend group, like are there ways they could be more social? Are there social groups in their area they could join? Have they cut off friends that were previously great supports that they could perhaps start talking to again and working with them around that? And then you get into the more formal psychotherapies. And there are a few, but uh, the one I think to focus most on is CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, because this is the gold standard psychotherapy for depression. Mm -hmm. And it works as well as medication. It just takes longer to start working because they have to go for multiple sessions. Now, this is maybe, I don't know if this is country, it's probably country dependent, but it can also be very hard to enroll patients into therapy that they can afford. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, anyways, the coverage or in Ontario, the coverage is not often that great. And so we have to find government covered therapy, which can be difficult. 
So there are a few reasons why it might be hard to get someone enrolled in therapy, but it's often just as good as medication. It can work well in combination with medication. So if you add it to medication, it works better. And the other nice thing about it is once you've done therapy, you've learned that information and you can keep applying it to your life. And so you're less likely to relapse versus someone who went on medication and then stopped their medication. So to decrease relapse in someone who's on meds, they have to stay on medication. But for someone who's done the therapy work, they've done that work and those lessons will stay with them for life, hopefully. Mm-hmm. So CBT, I won't go into all the details, but essentially how it works is it thinks about depression as an emotional state that is impacted by one's thoughts and one's behaviors. And so if you are doing less, if you're in bed all day, then you might start to feel pretty low in mood. Uh, You may also start to have some thoughts that, uh, oh, I'm not not going to work. I'm I'm not doing my part for society. I'm, I'm not as good as these other people. And all these work to keep someone depressed. And so CBT starts by challenging thoughts and behaviors to examine them in a more realistic way and get people out of that sort of rut of depression. Mm-hmm. So we've uh, covered the, the psychosocial interventions mm-hmm. that are really important to consider for the patients. What would be the different medications or, or neuromodulations that, that might be considered as well? For sure. So in terms of medications, the biggest ones would be the SSRIs, the SNRIs, and then two medications that don't really fall into those categories, that fall into their own unique categories, which is bupropion, otherwise known as Welbutrin, and mirtazapine, otherwise known as Remeron. Mm -hmm. And there are some other older medications, but we don't really uh, use them very much anymore. So I'll I'll kind of skip over those. They're the TCAs and the MAOIs, but... Mm -hmm. But the ones that we use the most are, are the ones I mentioned, the SSRIs, the SNRIs, well, butrin and mirtazapine. The way that these work is basically increasing in the brain either serotonin or norepinephrine or dopamine. The SSRIs are the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, so they prevent the neurons from reuptaking serotonin and getting it out of that synaptic cleft where it does its job. The following medications are in that category. So you have sertraline, citalopram, S-citalopram, paroxetine, fluoxetine, and fluvoxamine. Mm -hmm. You'll get to know the names of these medications, I'm sure, on your rotation. But they have some common ways in which they work. And all of them, unfortunately, work pretty slowly. So usually they take about a month or six weeks to really start to help with depression. So that's an important thing to tell your patients because otherwise they might expect it to work kind of right away and be disappointed with the results and stop the medication. Right. The other things to talk to your patients about in terms of common side effects with the SSRIs and SNRIs is that they tend to have sexual side effects. So usually this is anorgasmia, so a lack of orgasm, or low libido. So important to talk to them about that. Also, there is a risk if this person 
like we were saying, they might have bipolar disorder. They just haven't had a manic episode yet. If you put them on an antidepressant, sometimes you can switch them into a manic episode. So you just have to warn them that that can happen. The other things are that often they have GI upset or nausea, diarrhea, things like that. And then you can often get nuisance sort of side effects like uh, dry mouth, dizziness, headache, trouble sleeping or sleepiness. Those nuisance ones, they tend to get better over the first week or so. Mm -hmm. And so often those go away, luckily, and you can tell people that. Yeah, I think those are the main ones. And then you also want to just warn them about serotonin syndrome, which is rare. But if they're on a bunch of medications that can also increase serotonin, they're at risk for developing this toxidrome, and it can be potentially deadly. So you should tell them to tell other doctors they're on these medications when they're prescribing. And then in my understanding, uh, moving on to SNRIs, these are uh, selective uh, serotonin and norepinephrine uh, reuptake inhibitors. It's it's pretty similar uh, sort of set of risks and side effects, but the main difference being that with the norepinephrine reuptake inhibition, there can be some associated blood pressure risks as well. Exactly, exactly. So these would include medications like duloxetine, venlafaxine, and desvenlafaxine. And you're right, Nick, it's basically the same set of side effects, but you add in that blood pressure and a high heart rate because that noradrenaline is uh, higher in their system. So it kind of makes sense from that perspective. So that's kind of a lucky one from a learning perspective that it kind of works out that way. Yeah. And then uh, you mentioned some of these other two medications, mirtazapine and bupropion. So very briefly, I guess, in the, in the uh, purpose of looking at our time here, mm-hmm. what would be some considerations for those and, and who might they be a good treatment for? Right. So bupropion is interesting because it acts on noradrenaline and dopamine. So it actually doesn't have any serotonergic effect. And the real advantage there is that it doesn't cause the sexual side effects that is seen with the SSRIs. And so it's a good one often for people who are very concerned about that. The classic example would be like younger people, but it can really be anyone who has had issues with the sexual side effects. And then mirtazapine is also a unique beast. It's got a kind of a complicated mechanism of action that I won't go into. But the nice thing about mirtazapine is it is pretty sedating. And so for people who have trouble with sleep, you prescribe it at night and it can help with sleep. It also doesn't have the sexual side effects and it doesn't have the GI upset. And actually Mm -hmm. it can kind of help with nausea, if anything. Mm -hmm. The one downside of mirtazapine is it can cause some weight gain. So you have to Mm -hmm. warn people about that. But uh, those are the unique features of those two and, and the reasons we tend to try those ones relatively quickly for uh, neuromodulation then you know so outside of uh, medications something that may be considered in patients with major depressive disorder would be some neuromodulation interventions which would be TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation or uh, ECT electroconvulsive therapy ECT is more widely available so you might be more likely to see that but that is generally a treatment where the patient would have a, a seizure induced with the effect of, of there being an antidepressive effect from the seizure. 
versus for transcranial magnetic stimulation, there's an electromagnet that is inducing a, a current um, in part of the brain that tends to be more quieted down or inactive in depression. That treatment being a little less invasive because there's no anesthesia required versus in electroconvulsive therapy. There is anesthesia, and for that reason, the patient would be asleep and you know won't really have memory of the procedure. And it's a, I guess, perhaps you'd say more of a quicker treatment uh, where there wouldn't be required as many sessions as there would be for TMS. I've rambled a little bit about each of them, but is there is there anything that you'd like to add about those? No, I, I mean, I think that's a really good point on both those treatments. So as you say, for ECT, you're inducing a, a seizure with an electrical stimulus applied to the person's scalp, essentially. And the stimulus itself and the seizure are thought to be what makes the treatment effective. The thing to know about ECT is that it's our most effective treatment for depression. So it gets the highest response rate. So it has a 70 to 80% response rate in depression and a 50% response rate in treatment-resistant depression, which is also quite good. This compared to medications, which is about 30% of people responding to their first medication, it's quite a lot better. However, the reason, you know, why, so then why don't we use it for everyone if it's so effective? Well, the problem is it has significant side effects and it's also burdensome for people to have to come into hospital and go through a procedure where they're under anesthesia. And the biggest issues with ECT from a side effect perspective is memory impairment. We don't fully understand it, but something about inducing the seizure we think causes this. And usually it's around the time of the procedure itself. They'll forget, uh, you know, a few weeks before or after they can have some memory impairment during that time. But being that's our most effective treatment, we will jump to it earlier in treatment if there is certain criteria, right? So if the person is really severely depressed or if they're acutely suicidal, or if they have psychosis, or if they're catatonic and not eating or drinking, then we're going to move to that earlier. Or if maybe you have a patient who wants to do it early, you might move to it earlier. You, you would uh, also consider it later on in the treatment for people who have failed multiple medications. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of our last resort for people who have failed other treatments. Yeah. And I know with uh, TMS, you guys had a really great episode where you did a deep dive into it as well. So for anyone that's interested, I highly suggest you check out the Psyched Podcast and listen to that episode if you're interested in learning more about what's on the, the front lines with, with that treatment as well. So in this episode, we've gone through the diagnosis of major depression. We've gone through the differential diagnosis, the mental status exam, and uh, some of the different treatments that might be available to these patients. I think now might, might be a good time to wrap up a bit. Is there any last things you wanted to add, Dr. Rabin, before we uh, send some people off to, to listen to your podcast, your episodes, and, and really learn more about everything that Psyched Podcast is doing? Well, I just think the big thing is to remain curious and take your time with learning the criteria, have your hypothesis testing lenses on when you're asking these questions. I would also recommend that you keep things organized on your page so that you can keep things organized 
when you're talking to your attendings and writing your notes. Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Alps Rabin, for your time. He is, again, from the Psyched Podcast. Uh, for any of you that are interested in learning more about psychiatry uh, and or maybe uh, going into this field, I highly suggest it. We thank you so much for your time, Dr. Rabin. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much for listening. That's it for today. You've been listening to Inside the Boards, the best free audio resource for board prep and med school.